Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss but first and foremost I'm delighted to have Hugo Ambrose on the programme. Hugo is director at Lynx Sports Management Limited, the entity which operates open air Lido Limington Seawater Baths in Hampshire. Hugo, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Good morning. Yeah, I'm delighted. Good morning, Hugo. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and considering it in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what the word leader means to you and what you feel the role of a leader ought to be. Uh, it can mean a number of things, can't it? But I think if I'm applying it to the, the corporate world and, and what I'm doing at the moment, um, the Lido that I run is staffed in a non-pandemic year by about 80, uh, well, generally young people, uh, a mix of both lifeguards and people who work in our cafe. And for those 80 people, because for a number of them, it's their first job. Uh, so they're pretty unsure of themselves. They're pretty young. Um, so I think I, as a, as a director or leader, I have a responsibility to try to give them a positive start in what they're doing, to look after them and really to prepare them for, for future life. You know, they, as I said, it's a, it's a holiday job. It starts as that. Uh, we're usually very busy. And I suppose, to put it in a nutshell, there aren't very many adults who want to be told what to do by a 16, 17-year-old lifeguard. That, of course, there is a challenge in and of um, itself, I suppose, uh, Hugo. And as you alluded to during the, um, the dis- your explanation earlier then, we are unfortunately in the midst of a pandemic this year. The COVID-19 situation has become one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say. So it would be remiss of me, of course, not to ask just how that has affected you and your operations. It's been pretty brutal, actually. The we. We have, as an open-air leader, we have a 19-week season. Uh, we are now down We uh, down this year, week season. Uh, and then that is our income stream disappeared until we open again in, hopefully open again in May of 2021. Uh, so it, it's really, it's not been easy. Uh, but having said that, we have managed to open and we've got customers. And so we are making some money as opposed to no money or, or even losing money. And what do you think the long-term effect of this sort of pandemic and lockdown period will ultimately be on your line of work? It's hard to, it's hard really to see. Uh, as a leader, we uh, like very many leisure businesses, we rely on volume and social distancing and, and everything that goes with it just does not allow for volume businesses to operate properly. So I think if social distancing is there, then we need to change our business model away from volume and and to give people 
the opportunity to come and have the same experience, but actually to make them be able to, well, frankly, pay more uh, for the experience. So we need to invest in, in what we do to give them a better time. And in terms of the safety guidelines that you've had to adhere to to enable the business to reopen, have you been satisfied with the clarity and transparency of those guidelines that have been issued? I have, actually. I, I think I've, I hear perhaps too much in the media that um, it's either confusing or people are unsure. But I think they, every business is, is the same. We would be different from probably every other swimming pool. Everyone has, has to really think about what they're trying to achieve, uh, which is fundamentally to keep people safe. And, um, and they make the best effort on that. Uh, so yes I, I broadly have been satisfied and the pandemic situation has been a very difficult and sensitive time for many of course but also for business it's been I think it's fair to say quite a steep learning curve as well is there anything that you can take away from this experience that you have learned as a business leader in the last few months I think the message is really to expect the unexpected uh, which is uh, I think we've seen that with travelers going to Spain um, that they, they didn't expect that um, to be put in quarantine. And I, I think as a business now, you just you have to take each day as it, come, as, as it comes. But I think you, you're really trying to prepare for all eventualities, which are probably more negative, but actually you just are, are going to hope for the positive eventualities. And within leadership in general, I think it's also fair to say that although leadership and management are fundamentally different things, people management is a fundamental part of leadership as a whole. You have to be able to work with individuals. And as you mentioned, you work with a great deal of employees in a normal year. Um, How has it been sort of managing that during this pandemic period? Because I can imagine you've had to have one or two sort of quite tricky conversations with certain people. Well, we have, and uh, I think the frustration actually has has been that we haven't been able to give opportunities to young people. I think they have been really severely impacted by the pandemic, uh, both in their educational, uh, you know, whether they're going to university, you know, educational side, whether they're on gap years, and also just their, their potential for earnings. So I think. I, I really feel for them within this. And it's really thrust the importance uh, this period of men, uh, the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight, hasn't it? Not just because of the loss of opportunities for youngsters and also the social isolation side of it, but also the sheer stress and anxiety that is being placed upon the shoulders of business leaders and employees alike. I think that's absolutely right. And I think as a as a business, we and probably every other business has a uh, has to take a mindset that we're actually in this maybe for a couple of years and we just need to firstly keep your business functioning, but actually look after people around you. So I think there is that, that essence of, uh, of community, not only within your workforce, but actually within your customers. And when you know that something difficult is sort of around the corner, Hugo, and you're having to steel yourself to face some form of difficulty, and I'm not just talking in the context of COVID-19, but it could be any difficulty in the context of the business, how do you sort of mentally prepare yourself to go about dealing with that? I think some of that comes through experience. Um, I've had, you know, in the the time that um, that I've been, been 
in the, alive, as it were. Um, I've I've had good times and bad times, and I think you learn from the bad times, and they they do enable you to really to develop a strength of of, of mind uh, that you're going to get through situations such as as now. So whilst this isn't easy, uh, I I feel confident that we can cope with that. So experience has been quite a sizable influence on you then, I think it's fair to say. Um, with regards to other maybe areas where you draw inspiration from as a leader, Hugo, is there anything that really sticks out, any individuals perhaps that you've looked up to throughout your career in life? Definitely uh, the the characters that I, I tend to look up to are sporting characters. Mm. Uh, we've got some terrific Olympians and uh, professional sports people uh, that we have um, that we have been led by as a, as a country uh, so Steve Redgrave, Martin Johnson, Sir Andy Strauss uh, to name a few uh, lots of uh, lots of, of really impressive characters. Mm, some fantastic examples of course you were named there Hugo and um as well as the fact that, of course, um, you're quite passionate about working with younger people and giving them opportunities. Um, if you were, therefore, to give some advice to a young person who is perhaps about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, what advice would you give them based upon your experience? I think they have to be themselves. I don't think you can pretend to be anyone else. I think you, you're you looking really at human values in leadership. Uh, you're looking to get the best out of the people around you, uh, and you can do that in a non-confrontational way. I think that's very right. I think authenticity is incredibly important. And just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Hugo, having reflected on the pandemic experience that you've had the past as well, I think it's only right that we also address the future and what's to come over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. We do know, of course, that until we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic decisively, we are going to have to adjust to a new way of life, a new normal way of working. So what over the next 12 months do you think is next for you for Link Sports Management and for the Baths and what do you really hope to achieve during this time? I think it's not going to be an easy uh, year, this one. Uh, We have to really hope that we can finish our season, which uh, for us is mid-September, without further hiccup. Um, And then it's, frankly, it's going to be a very quiet winter and we will see which way the pandemic is going to go. And ultimately, that will influence how we operate next year. Uh, we're lucky that we're not in a position that we are not going to be operating next year. We, we know we are. Uh, so we, we have the confidence of being able to plan appropriately. And let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share next spring. And I think it would actually be wonderful, Hugo, to catch up at that point in time and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on, because there are a great many variables still in this. And we're just keeping our fingers crossed, aren't we, that it's all going to be positive trajectory from here. I completely agree. Hugo, it's been a real, real pleasure having you uh, join us and a very insightful experience for those listeners tuning in as well, I'm sure. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Many thanks. 
I was speaking today to Hugo Ambrose, director at Link Sports Management Limited. Um, coming up next on the programme today, I'm going to be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Since retiring from playing, he's taken up the post of director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. That is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? 
Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt, you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, 
you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on the sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death, there's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got, the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive, if you're thinking about... Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.